this season on Everest Air. If you're calling us, you need help. Here we go. It's very awkward for a rescue team to receive a call knowing that if you say no, two people will die. Oh, God. Saying yes, six people could die. Jump four. We was pushing over fast. We got his head back. Damn man. I've never seen a place so beautiful. Jesus. So beautiful. And at the same time, so deadly. I know the mountains, right? Superhuman what you just did. It's amazing. I've got 10 from Grandpa Point. I think we're and husband. What I see is fear. When I have an unconscious person coming down from 22,000 feet, that's real deal. I witnessed a lot of extractions in my time. I've never seen anything like that. Okay, Sima, move your feet. I need to get her down to the hospital. Sima. There's already been one fatality at base camp. These are big boy mountains, man. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. As you can tell from the opening audio there and the episode title, episode 59 of the Rotary Wing Show is obviously going to be covering medical evacuations in the area surrounding Mount Everest in Nepal and some of the challenges that the terrain, weather and thin air pose for helicopter operations. So the audio you heard there was from the TV series called Everest Air, which is on the Discovery Travel Channel. And again, it's a longer audio clip than I would normally use for the intro, and it's you know very dramatized. It does a good job of setting the scene for today's interview. And I guess before we get into the guest, you know, just quickly talking about you know my high altitude experience is incredibly limited. So in Australia here, if you're from overseas, you're not sure, our highest mountain is actually seven thousand three hundred feet. So you know, pretty much that's you know heat for the rest of the country. You can fly around that height and not hit anything. And again, most of the country is much, much flatter and lower than that. So the highest I've ever been in a helicopter is 10,000 feet. So that was when I, in a Huey doing an engine uh, topping check out at Oki, which is about two hours west of Brisbane. And the, the surface area, that, or the elevation is at 1,300. So you imagine up at 10,000 feet, there's you know, pretty much 9,000 feet AGL uh, looking down. And, uh, you know, just climbing up and getting back down is, you know, awfully high when you're used to, you know, boating around at sort of 200 to 500 feet. I can still remember thinking, you know, please don't have an aircraft fire. Please don't have an aircraft fire because it was such a long way down that, you know, there wouldn't be much left of the aircraft by the time we got to the ground. So luckily for all of us, it's uh, definitely not me talking about high altitude stuff today. We've got Andrew Gutzel. He's a New Zealander. He's got his early experience flying tourists on the glaciers of the South Island of New Zealand before heading abroad. Andrew is currently working with Air Dynasty in Nepal as part of the Alpine Rescue Service, which you heard in the Everest Air promo, as a combined aviation and medical team servicing the communities and the climbers in the Himalayas. So we catch up with Andrew in a hotel room in Kathmandu in between his sort of shuttles between New Zealand and Nepal. So again, I'll chat about it afterwards, but it's just one of these episodes and, and listening to Andrew talk that you know, photos and videos has really add to the experience. So at rotarywingshow.com.au, again, for this blog post, I've got a heap of photos and a heap of videos for this one just to try and add some more context so you can go back and look at and watch after you've heard this. So to kick off with, I asked Andrew about a photo showing him with a heap of Kentucky Fried Chicken Tubs at Everest Base Camp. Yeah, so it was an interesting one. I guess um, it was summit season, so a lot of the Sherpa guys that we work with, and you kind of become quite friendly with them, working with them every day. 
And by the time they summit, a lot of people don't realise, but they've been at Everest Base Camp for two or three months and they've been working pretty hard. So um, this season was a bit unique because the the weather windows weren't really playing the game. Around the end of uh, May, the the jet stream kind of quietens down and that's really the only kind of time of year that they can summit Everest without having the high winds. Yep. So they, they weren't quite having any luck with um, the weather dying off. and It was a bit of a finicky season, so a lot of the boys, the morale was pretty low. So we had machines going backwards and forwards to Kathmandu taking patients down. So I got one of the operations guys to go and buy $300 worth of chicken, and we flew that up to them. So they love that. And what we did actually was we incorporated a, a helicopter safety briefing at base camp and with the KFC chicken meal. So Fantastic. it worked pretty well, actually, because that's kind of a critical time uh, for us doing those rescues above the above the Kumbu Icefall in the Western Coombe. And it's the sort of place where you don't want, really want anything to go wrong. Um, and there's a lot of people up there, so the more kind of people we can brief, the better. And that was a good excuse to get them all to turn up at the helipad. Oh, absolutely. You could, and, uh, I can just imagine them. Lift the morale at the same time. <laughs> They'll be running over. And we'll get into that later on, but uh, exactly, you know, if you're a single pilot uh, turning up somewhere where there's no time to, you know, you can't even shut the aircraft down and briefing and stuff like that and people are you know, working the no. climbers, that'll be interesting yeah. when we cover that. So so back, and I guess we'll talk, of, you know, it's obviously climbing Mount Everest is pretty integral to what we're talking about because that's the operations you're doing. So mm. the people who are climbing are yeah. actually... So it's not just the Sherpas, but the people who are climbing up are actually spending, you know, weeks and months at base camp before they go anywhere? Yeah, so for a lot of people, they spend a year or a couple of years training just for the Everest summit. And you get a, you get a big variation of different people from all over the world that are trying to do it. A lot of people are trying to do the seven summits, which is a really big achievement. Yeah, so the acclimatisation is the big thing up there. So if you don't allow your, your body to get used to the altitude and, and, and acclimatise properly, then you get into a lot of trouble. So they spend about three weeks just walking up to Everest Base Camp. And then from there, they'll spend two and a half, three months climbing other smaller peaks in the area, uh, climbing up to Camp 1, back down, up to Camp 2, back down, Camp 3. So that's they spend a lot of time just preparing themselves, getting fit, getting strong, and getting acclimatised to that kind of attitude before that uh, weather window opens up and the jet stream dies off for them to, to allow them to summit. So, so at any particular time, yeah, how, it's how many a people big are time at, investment, really. how many people are at base camp at any particular time? Uh, this season there was about seven hundred summit permits issued, I think, around there, and uh, I would say there'd be over thirteen hundred people at base camp. So that's just a tent city on a glacier and a pretty unassuming valley. If it wasn't for the fact that Everest was there, there'd be no one. Yeah, so it's just a, a, a tent city that springs up overnight. There's trails of yaks going up and down the valley, taking supplies and taking porterhouse steak to all the, the rich climbers and all the rest of it. That's been the next question yeah. is how they get resupplied. Is it, is it all via helicopters? But it's obviously there's, yeah. there's ground resupply as well. Yeah, so the, traditionally it's um, it's it's the yaks they use, you know, the Himalayan yaks, and they ferry them up and down the valley. A lot of it gets flown into Lukla Airport, and then from there it gets carried up on the yaks, but... Um, we do fly a lot of supplies up in the season. Different climbers want different things, and there's a, there tends to be a lot of money floating around base camp. So there's bacon from the states, and steak from Kathmandu, and all the all the rest of it gets flown up as well. So yeah, interesting, um, interesting little setup. All right. So you mentioned um, Luca uh, or, or Lukla. How's the pronunciation? Lukla, yeah. Lukla. Is that that's the airfield? It's what about is it? 20 minutes, 25 minutes, sort of straight line from base camp, or how close is it? Yeah, so it's a, it's about about 16 minutes flight time from Everest base camp. It's about yeah, about 40 miles, I think, in a straight line. So it's not too far away by helicopter, but for most people walking, like the trekkers, there's a lot of trekking, a lot of tourists going to base camp just to see it now. It takes them about 14 days return, just because you can't go straight up at full speed. You've got to allow your body to acclimatise. But for us, it's it's really quick. Um, to get from Lukla up there. So we have two machines based during the season out of Lukla just to service the climbers and the trekkers in the valley. And let's, let's talk height-wise because, again, you know, everything we're talking about today here is is extreme. 
But uh, so the yeah. airport itself, uh, we based is is nine thousand three hundred feet. From looks things, so well, I looked it up, and I mean, yeah, that's look, I've been yeah. playing with Google Earth and three D and and having a look at the area and watching videos <laughs> and stuff like that. It's just you know, it's out of this world. Some of the stuff up there, especially near the actual glaciers, where the you know it's just like a, a moonscape. So yeah. and the terrain varies. Like you know, there's, there's a couple of trees and stuff like that in this valley. It looks like there's just the, the one valley. You're basically tripping up and backwards. In, in that valley for most of the time. Yeah, for, for a lot of it. I mean, there's, a, there's about three or four valley systems in the Solacombo region and the kind of Everest in the national park there. But yeah, the, the Everest Valley is the main one in the Kombu, Kombu Valley. So yeah, it, it's, it's more or less a trail going from Lukla all the way up to a town called Namche, which is about 12,500 feet. So that's about the same height as Mount Cook in New Zealand, our highest peak. From there, the trail kind of continues, continues its way up Originally, the Sherpa people come across the Himalayas from Tibet, so they're of Tibetan genealogy, uh, about 3,000 years ago. So that trail's been more or less there as a trade route in the valley for about 3,000 years. So that, that they've been there a long time, and it's only since Everest was really first climbed or it was first discovered by the British surveyors uh, and back in the day that, that people started coming to see the mountain and trying to climb it and all the rest of it. And that... That tourism trade here has kind of picked up over the last 10 years to the point now where there's about 35,000 trekkers that go up and down the valley per year. And uh, they're, they're just going up to base camp just to see it. So they're not climbing. And then during the season, there's a lot more uh, mountaineers going to try and summit the peak as well. So it's a busy little valley and it's just getting busier. And as it, as it gets busier, of course, there's more and more uh, requirement for rescue operations in the valley as well, especially with that kind of extreme altitude you were mentioning before. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about uh, Lukla and then, uh, again, the I guess the service that you guys are doing there with the medical rescue. So in terms of the, the town, mm-hmm. how many locals would there be in that town itself? Uh, well, in the off-season, during the monsoon, the airport kind of shuts down. So that's during the Southern Hemisphere, winter, June, July, August. And there's probably less than 100 people living in the town at that stage. A lot of the, a lot of the locals have got houses in Kathmandu as well. During the peak season, there's as many as... Two and a half thousand tourists a night um, staying there, and probably another three to four hundred locals. So it's more or less just a bunch of lodges and hotels just catering for the tourists. So before Subban Hillary and you know the Kiwi expedition, Kiwi British expedition came to the Himalayas, there wasn't really much there. But after they summited, um, Subban Hillary and the Hillary Foundation built a lot of uh, airports in the valley, so there's about six airports, I think, to try and open the region up for the Sherpa people. They built a lot of schools and hospitals and stuff as well, but so when they, that was about when the Lukla um, airstrip came about, so in the late 60s, I think. And it's, it's unique, like it's impressive. It's uh, when you talk about one-way strips in Papua New Guinea and places like that. But you go and look at this thing; it is absolutely one way. You're basically, uh, and again, you know, not so much a drama for for helicopters, but the the videos of the fixed wing guys landing. Uh, you know, you're basically coming straight in, landing off a cliff, and the the runway slopes up the hill, and at the end of the runway looks like a, an accommodation house. Yeah, yeah, so there's just a, a cliff more or less at the end of the runway. So it's um, one of those runways that it's absolute commitment. Once you go past a certain point, there's no go around. And the other thing about it is it's always a tailwind with uh, antibiotic wind uh, during the day. It's uh, almost almost pretty regularly after about 9 a.m. in the morning, um, tailwind for them as well. So they've got a 15-knot limit, I believe, anything over 15 knots, and they won't fly. Main aircraft they use is Don Airs and Twin Otters, so they're pretty capable stole machines, but even they struggle a bit at times. Ah, uh, look, it's, you know, and I'll, again, with the, the post that goes up with this interview, I'll put some photos and videos up, and it's, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. We're, we're, yeah, when they get to the end of the runway, there's only, I don't know, it looks like maybe five metres from the bitumen to the, the stone walls and the buildings on the side of the, of the strip. Yeah. There's an NDV antenna, it looks like, yeah. uh, right next to it. It's uh, for fixed wing guys. It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would be very, very uh, yeah, elevated blood pressure going in there. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I, I don't personally like flying in there in the fixed wing because uh, I have to sit in the back seat. I'm much happier in the cockpit. Yeah, but in town, 
and, and again, we spoke about this before we hit record. It's amazing you can actually jump on, you know, basically Google Earth and Street View and and walk through the town. So there's obviously no vehicles or anything. It's all you know cobblestone no, yeah. streets and and and, and that, yeah. But there's a, a Starbucks of all places, there's a Scottish pub, an Irish pub, there's a couple of snooker halls. Um, yeah. So it, yeah, it must be a yeah. pretty buzzing uh, buzzing town when the uh, the climbers yeah, are coming it's through. An interesting little place when the, the tourists are there, and it's yeah, good mix of tourists and uh, climbers and and chirpers and climbing guides and all the rest of it so yep it's an interesting little place it's one of a kind for sure all right well can you give us a bit of a rundown then on the on the medical and the rescue sort of service that you're involved in yeah so i guess 90 percent of our work is rescue operations uh, in nepal the other 10 percent tourism passenger transport only about one percent of the work that's that gets carried out in nepal is external load work not a huge market for that so we don't really concentrate on that at this stage how is it performance-wise? Like, we're, you know, obviously, ideally, you got OG hover performance and stuff like that. Can, like, can you yeah, still so get that? Yeah, there's two components that we we have to think about with um, with performance. One of them is the performance of the aircraft, which seems pretty obvious, but the other thing is the performance of the pilot because they both suffer with the altitude. And now, uh, Mick McConnor at the point where, with the B3E, the helicopter outperforms the pilot in a lot, in a lot of cases, you know, Spending a lot of time between that 15,000 and 23,000 feet as a pilot, it's it's really tough on your body. Uh, we obviously use supplementary oxygen, but every time you're going up and back to those sorts of altitudes, there's a lot of pressure put on your brain and your organs and all the rest of it. So, so for me, I'd probably lose about 13 kgs a season flying up here. So I yep. have to finish up and go back to the gym and go back to training to prepare to come back for the next season again. So... Pretty similar to what climbers experience with muscle wastes at altitude, but I mean, for me, I don't get to acclimatise gradually. I go up and back all day, every day, so the body gets gets a bit of a pounding. Yeah, a hammering, yeah. yeah. Okay, we'll we'll talk about the human factors um, bits and pieces in a moment. But can you wrap some numbers around? Yeah. You know, the number of rescues in a normal week, uh, like the daily schedule. Like you, you, know, um, you wake up and pre-flight yeah, the aircraft and call. Really? Yep. So. Over a season, I think, well, the, the busiest month over the Everest rescue season with the medical team, we took statistics on about 90 rescues. The busiest season I've, I've had was over four months, and I think I did 485 pickups, a lot of those acute mountain sickness. Wow. It's a pretty busy season. So, I mean, a typical day for me, I start life in Lukla. I, because I acclimatize every season before I go up, I have to go trekking and climbing to get my body used to the altitude. So I tend to stay in Lukla with the aircraft um, just to try and maintain a little, little bit of that acclimatization. So I stay up there in a little uh, tea lodge. It was um, not the best facilities, but not too bad either. It's very local, very humble kind of kind of facilities there. And it's easy too, because we can just wander down 100 meters to the aircraft, do your pre-flight, meet with the engineer, talk to the operations staff, find out what we're doing for the day and then uh, assess the weather. So we don't have a lot of forecasting technology, but we do have reasonably good cell phone reception in the whole valley. So we've got really good relationships with all the lodge owners. So they'll send us photos in the morning of the weather and what it's doing. They'll let us know if it's clear or if it's cloudy. And then uh, from there, we'll make a bit of a plan and about 6 a.m. start the aircraft and go about a day. And let's talk about the the time there as well, and the importance of actually starting early, because you basically said you've got a cutoff time at about two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, so with with the weather systems here, it's it's quite interesting. Lukla itself is probably what we'd class as hill country. So you can break Nepal up into three kind of distinct sections. One is obviously the high Himal in the mountain ranges. The next down to the south would be the hill country, and then further south again towards India is the Terai, and that's Nepal itself ranges from about about 100 feet above sea level all the way up to 28,000 at the top of the Everest. So it's kind of a diverse weather pattern. You have a very alpine weather pattern up the top, and you have that monsoony kind of almost equatorial weather to the south. So about at the point where Lukla is is where those two weather systems kind of converge. It makes it pretty interesting. Can you talk about the importance of that sort of afternoon cutoff where you, you won't push for afternoon flights? Yeah. Um, so the, the key thing with that is, I mean, risk-wise, it's pretty similar to aviation in other countries for mountain flying. 
but the consequences are probably more severe if we get caught out without oxygen or if we're not prepared or caught in some strange little valley somewhere. It's pretty harsh um, weather conditions. And after sort of that um, mid-afternoon point, it clouds in pretty rapidly. If you get caught out up there after that, then no one's probably coming to get you. You know, there's a lot of times where we cross high passes and snowfields that are over 20,000 feet. And if you get weathered out at a spot like that, that's, yeah, it's pretty, pretty scary thought, really, being at that sort of altitude. So for us, we try not to do any high altitude rescues. I mean, for us, high altitude is above kind of 18,000 feet. After kind of mid-afternoon, 4 p.m. would be the absolute cutoff that we'd do anything on a, on a nice weather day, even if it's blue skies and we won't be working after that. And then the other thing is um, with duty times as well. So pretty similar to Australian uh, law, you know, with the, the duty times, we can't work too many hours. Okay, and fair enough. And base camp, I can't remember if we said how high base camp was. Yeah, base camp's just on 17,000 feet, um, reasonably high in altitude. Next one up then will be camp two, that's 21,000. Camp one, yeah, it's just it's just sitting on 20,500. And then uh, camp two is closer to 21,800. And then camp three is just above the legal operating limit for the B3E. So we're limited to 23,000 feet pressure altitude or 7,010 metres. And, and that's a hard and fast rule that we don't break. There's no need to go above that altitude. It's, it's difficult enough, Nick, um, going to camp two a lot of days, but going anything above that and it's not really not really my cup of tea <laughs> <laughs> i can imagine so and, and let's talk differently then yeah. is it you know i guess it's a combination of things whether it's weather and things like that but how's you know obviously my general understanding is uh you know as you you take the helicopter up you know the controls get sloppy uh obviously you have your performance drop and things like that but what's it like trying to land mm-hmm. a machine at you know 22 feet to be honest with you, <laughs> a lot of people over-glorify over it, but I mean, I did, did a lot of flying in the Mount Cook National Park in New Zealand, and it's pretty similar to landing a, a B-model AS350 with six passengers at 7,000. Okay. As long as you don't put huge control inputs in, you're not going to feel that um, that lack of control or, or the you know the less responsiveness of the aircraft. If, if you fly the machine slowly and smoothly, like you should, like you're trained to do in flight school, and then really that doesn't come into effect. And the, m- the more you move the controls, the more you take away from the power you have available as well. So those nice textbook approaches to a bit of a zero-speed landing, and it's not too much of an issue. If you try and over-control the aircraft, then you really notice how much power reduction you have, and uh, and also you notice that there's a little bit less responsiveness in the aircraft. But by and large, the, the AS350 rotor system is really good. Yeah. Yeah, compared to other helicopter types, I think. Do you start noticing the, the TAS effect, the difference? Oh, yeah, in a big way. Yeah, if you look at your GPS, you know, if in the mountains in New Zealand, you, you can look at your GPS at kind of 5,000 feet and it'll tell you if you have a tailwind or not. Up here, you've really got to think about it because there's a big difference, right? There might be 30 knots of difference between your indicated airspeed and your true airspeed or your ground speed. So, you know, not factoring in a wind component. So, yeah, it's it's a big deal, and you you really do feel your V and E as well. Like if you if you're not concentrating and you you know you take off to head down the valley, and you, you know you're at that point, so it's a lot nicer to just to take it slowly and, and not kind of push the machine too hard. And, and how many people can you pick up from those sorts of heights? Like, what's your what's your sort of performance there? So that's that's an interesting one. Uh, it depends kind of on the conditions. I mean, obviously the the main thing for us is the temperature best the most favorable conditions are first thing in the morning when it's nice and cold and with a nice catabatic wind on the glacier it's a lot more predictable a lot smoother that down valley wind and nice and cold so that's the perfect time of day to do it really but you know uh, a good example is Godaxep which is the last township before base camp uh, on a you know standard ice a day it's about 16,500 feet density altitude but if it's plus 10, then it goes to 19,800 feet. Yeah. So it's a difference between being able to pick up three people and being able to pick up two people and no gear. So it, it really is a big difference. Yeah. If you, and if you don't respect those margins then, and kind of pre, you know, pre-calculate what you're going to do for the day and the temperature and all the rest of it, then yeah, it'll really, really bite you. 
What about personal kit? Like when you take off from Lukla, what are you taking with you? We'll talk about oxygen shortly, but do you take, you know, mm-hmm. a full sort of overnight kit or survival gear or like, like you know, knives and torches? Yeah. <laughs> like I've what, what have you got on you? Yeah. I've got a backpack in the rear locker of the machine. I've got like a, a, a 1200 filled down jacket, some um, some good New Zealand merino thermals. Um, I've got crampons. I wear boots that take crampons whenever I'm flying up there, just so if I have to walk out for some reason, then I can. Um, I've got an ice axe, and I've got a little bit of food, but, I mean, the interesting thing about the Himalayas, you know, it's about the same size, Nepal, as uh, the South Island of New Zealand, but the difference is it's 30 million people in this country. So every little nook and cranny, there's a family living, farming potatoes at high altitude or farming rice, even more so maybe in the Everest region with the tourist lodges along the trail. There's a, there's a lot of people, you know, New Zealand or Canada or Alaska, you can go into the wilderness there in the helicopter and you're really alone, you know, and you need that survival kit. But one nice thing about being here is there's lodges and, and hotels and stuff along the trails. So, yeah, if you do get weathered out or something like a lot of guys have, they just land in one of the lodges, go inside and have a cup of tea, sit by the fire until the weather clears up again. Okay. Yeah, like it's it's different um, to... You know how I'd picture it because you you see the you know the extremes of the the mountains and things like that, but then to have that uh, yep. that population there, okay, that's different. All right, let's yeah. talk about. Uh, yeah, it's really different. Um, you're right. I was going to say let's, let's talk about human factors. And I, I think you, you said you did your medical on your last trip back to New Zealand, and I think you said you had your resting heart rate was in the forties. Yeah, yeah, so it was in the low forties. The doctor was a little bit taken aback by that. But um, that's, I mean, one of the side effects of working at altitude, um, well, firstly, we, you know, you need to be fit. I mean, you can't come up here and work, in, in my opinion anyway, and, and not be kind of fit for the task, and maybe more so than in aviation generally. Um, it, you know, the fitter you are, the better you handle the altitude. And, and saying that, the, the only way to be better at, at altitude is to have better genetics, but you can kind of be as fit as you can possibly be be nicely hydrated and get a lot of sleep, not have drunk any alcohol or, and be a non-smoker. And, and all those things kind of help a lot just to help your body deal with it. But then the side effect is when you come back down from altitude, you're really, really fit um, for the first kind of a week or a couple of weeks or so. And then after that, it wears off. But I was going to say, when you um, go home to New Zealand, do you smash I'd out be, like a, a triathlon or something like that? Yeah, you could. Like I, I go, go for regular runs and stuff. And when I got back from altitude last season, I went for a run and I kept running and I kept running and I usually kind of push myself into a, I wear myself out, but I just didn't have time to do it. You know, after an hour and a half, I was still running and I kind of thought, <laughs> well, I can't do this all day. <laughs> so I had to kind of give up at that point. But yes, I do my ACG in Australia actually from a medical, yeah, it was a resting heart rate of in the low 40s, around 43, I think it was. And the doctor was really surprised. So, yeah, so that's one of the beneficial things of working at altitude, but um, it is hard on on your organs and your, your heart and all the rest of it as well. So there's a downside too. So, so how would I go? So I'm sitting here at sea level in Brisbane, uh, here in Australia. I head across to Kathmandu on a on a commercial flight, and I grab a helicopter you yep. know, tour out of Kathmandu, and I had a look. You know, for fifteen hundred dollars US, you can get a a trip up to the base yep. camp return. And one of the little warning yep. or the cautions there is you get basically five minutes of base camp and that's it due to altitude yeah. and things like that. So, so after five, yeah, you know, so, so if I go straight from here at sea level up to base camp and have five minutes there, uh, how how am I going to be doing? Yeah, so it's a it's a difficult one that one because I mean, as you probably well realise that I mean traditionally for for humans we've made our way gradually up to altitude and that's just a normal walking pace. But when you put someone in the aircraft and within you know, an hour and a half there at 18,000 feet or 17,000 feet. It's um, it's quite a dangerous situation. So we have to be really careful about who we take. So the main thing is we fly them from Kathmandu to Lukla. Um, we we defuel, defuel the aircraft there, take the fuel out of it to lighten the machine up. Um, we take a maximum of three. And at that point, at 9,300 9, feet, we take everyone's blood oxygen levels and their heart rates just to see how they're dealing with the altitude at that point. And then from there, we make a decision. And we've got to cut off if people are below 87% blood oxygen, then they won't be taken on the mountain flight uh, to altitude. But they still have the option of going 
to the hotel that we use. We take them to breakfast after we've been up to see Everest. Um, and that's at about 12,000. So, I mean, we can kind of, we're pretty flexible with that. We can take people up to the hotel, but not up to altitude if there's a requirement for that or if we're worried that they're not going to deal with the altitude. And the other thing that we have um, kind of up our sleeve is that we're not exposing people to altitude for, for an extremely long time. It's just for around 15 minutes total that they'll be at altitude. And, uh, and to help with that, we've got supplementary oxygen in the helicopter for them as well. So that's the, that's the key thing, having the oxygen there. But you've got to be really careful about kind of who you take um, up to altitude, and not everyone can do it. But by and large, most people have no problems. All right, we've mentioned oxygen a couple of times. And again, you know, I've never used it. I've never flown in a, in a machine, you know, obviously, you, you know, civil you know, 737s and things like that. But in terms of helicopter flying, I've never had oxygen yeah. in, in the machine. So what does it, you know, what does it look like when you're wearing the oxygen? How, how does it work in terms of aircraft setup and um, and how you're actually breathing yeah. it in? So um, obviously it's a dangerous good. So we have to have to do a, a DG form for that when we're using oxygen on board the aircraft we have to have the dangerous goods training the other side of it is now there's kind of two systems that are, you can potentially use with oxygen delivery one is the nasal cannula you might see those on you know medical tv shows where they've just got a little hose and that um, the system the nasal cannula aviation system is certified to about 17,500 feet and then above that you need an oxygen mask system so the cannulas are good, but they just supply a constant stream of oxygen into your nose. A lot of that actually pours out as well. So there's no, there's no starting or stopping of the oxygen. And then this past year, we've developed an oxygen mask with top-out oxygen systems. And that has a little bladder on the side. It's similar to what the climbers use, but it gives you a measured amount of oxygen that just fills your lungs and doesn't fill your throat. A lot of people don't think about it, but... With the oxygen system, the simple systems, it's actually filling all of your throat and your mouth with oxygen as well. Okay. You can't absorb the oxygen through that part of your body, so it's a it's a waste of oxygen. It's a limited resource for us because everything has to be flown into Lukla. So I mean, the le- the least amount of oxygen we can use, or if we can use our oxygen more efficiently, then it makes more sense. We can spend more time flying the aircraft and not worrying about oxygen. So the system we've developed uses about half the amount of oxygen than the nasal cannula, so it's working really well. Yeah. And with the nasal cannula, is it, but um, is it pure oxygen or it's an air, air oxygen mix? Like it's you're not metering it at all? Yeah, it's basically it's, uh, on off? Pure, pure oxygen, yeah. But, um, to be honest with you, when you put pure oxygen on, you can feel the difference. You know, you think a bit clearer and your brain works a bit faster. Everything kind of comes together a little bit better. There's a, yeah, a couple of videos nice, there actually. where... People are jumping out, say base camp or wherever it is. To, um, machines left running yeah. while you're loading up, and then they jump back in and put the oxygen back on. Then, so I'm assuming after you've done a bit of mm-hmm. exercise loading packs and stuff like that, you jump back in, and put the oxygen back on, and you, that's what you're saying. You, you really notice yeah. that hit? Yeah, you do. Yep, it's not so bad for me with being acclimatized, but you know, with the passengers, I mean, the thing I always say to them is, it's going to feel like you've had a couple of shots of tequila. You know, it kind of goes to your brain quite quickly. It just makes you a little bit lightheaded. I mean, some people don't have any side effects at all, but generally people feel, yeah, just a little bit lightheaded. So, I mean, the the, the key things that come from that, obviously the, the first symptoms of having less oxygen going to your brain is your decision-making starts to take a hit. So it's important for pilots, obviously, to, to have that oxygen system flying. But uh, the other thing is we have to keep really close eye on the passengers because they are outside a, a running helicopter. You know, we have to have... Really have to have passenger control going on there, just to keep things keep things safe for them. Is there anything with the oxygen? Is there anything that sort of trips up people up, or anything there that you know is sort of interesting for people who've never used it? Um, it's not too bad. I mean, it's you know it's a flammable substance, so it's something you've got to be careful of. I have had like Sherpa guys loading packs in and out of the machine, and I've uh, pulled my oxygen hose off. <laughs> okay. so, I mean, that, that's something you've got to keep an eye on. And I, I luckily I, I turned around and realised that that they disconnected my oxygen and plugged it back in. But you know, I just as easily could have taken off and, and headed on down the valley at, at twenty thousand feet with no oxygen. So yeah, it's um the devil's in the details, as I'm sure you know with aviation. But 
Ah, uh, crazy. <laughs> Again, you know, it's a it's completely yeah. different sort of skill set and systems that uh, a lot of people won't haven't used as well. Yeah. Can we talk about airspace and regulation? Uh, so I think you said like, there's no, you know, there's no such thing as a Nepal license. You just bring in your international license and get validation. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. So I've um, validated my Canadian license in the past year, and I'm on my Australian license at the moment. So, yeah, it's a pretty simple process. Civil Aviation Nepal doesn't have any flight training in the country. And they don't have any license of their own. They have just have a validation of foreign pilots' licenses. So the same rules that would apply for me in Australia for my medical, or for all the other things that are involved with my license apply for me in Nepal. Except for that, there's no single-engine night flying in Nepal uh, as of yet, and I don't think there will be in the, in the near future. Is there much MVG work over there? Like, is it you know, is there any flying at night time? Um, it's been it's been suggested. There's twin-engine IFR at night, but there's no VFR night flying in the pool. To be honest with you, it's difficult enough in the daytime flying a helicopter in the mountains here without adding that extra component in to be oh, working at night as well. So. It'd be scary as. I mean, <laughs> the lower yeah. safe must be absolutely well, huge. From, from a, doing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just the thought of it just spends my, sends my risk assessment spiralling out of control. Yeah. Because I, I guess, again, look, most of your landing areas are going to be down in the valley. So, yeah, it's just no, crazy. Yeah, yeah. Airspace-wise, like, is it, you know, do you just have like a controlled area around Kathmandu and the rest of the country is uncontrolled? How, yeah. how does that sort of work out? There's only one one international airport in Nepal, Kathmandu. Pretty standard sort of, you know, con- um, they have control, approach, tower and ground. It's very similar to most other countries. It's based on the IKO system. So it's um, very similar the only difference is that all of Nepal FIR is covered by Kathmandu control. So every 30 minutes in Nepal airspace, you're supposed to report in to Kathmandu control. So either by HF radio, which some of our aircraft are fitted with, or VHF if we have a reception. Um, there's lots of little ATIS or information airports all around the country as well. So we can report into those just to let them know that we're still on track and doing what we should be and nothing's going wrong. So that's, that's basically the system, except for when we work in the high-altitude environment. There's n- not really a reliable way to contact them. So we either we give local information, their details, or whatever airport we're working from, our endurance, POB, estimated timeline route, the level we'll be flying at, the following command, and our estimated time of arrival, and then that's it, kind of on your own. Um, we use satellite tracking systems in the aircraft, but... I mean, it, it still feels it still feels quite isolating at some some points up in the mountains here. So, so departing out of, out of Lukla up to was the base camps. So you, yep. the actual comms in the valley, it's on a like a local VHF frequency, or are you talking UHF to the to the guys on the ground. What sort yeah. of comms you got set up in the so aircraft? So we talk VHF to to the Lukla Information Service, and then we have VHF to our base at Lukla, and then from there up we've got um, FM repeaters in the valley that a lot of the aircraft use. And we have a lot of our, our Sherpa guides at base camp have VHF radios as well, so we can contact them on the way up the valley. And a couple of the lodge owners too have base radios. So in the Lukla and Solakumbu Everest region, contact's pretty good. But, I mean, we don't just work around Everest. We work from the far west to the far east of Nepal. There's a lot of high peaks that people are climbing on. and A reasonable amount of our work is um, outside of the Everest region as well. So... That, that stuff's pretty remote, and uh, and the satellite phone really comes in handy with that. Andrew, what do you do for charts and, and maps? Uh, so we do we have maps on all the aircraft, and we have the standard A350 Garmin 430 GPSs in the machine, which are really good. And aside from that, a lot of people use the Enav Pro or a, like a secondary iOS um, navigation system as well, just as a bit of a backup. They're they're a nice little um, tool, nice moving map, color um, color screen. So a lot of the guys use those. I have myself my iPhone 6s Plus plugged in there just to have that as a backup. Yep. But um, I mean our primary navigation is the is the GPS in the helicopter. All right, we'll jump all over the place here, but just uh, you know, again, heaps of questions have been noting down as we've been doing things. But the um, what's the situation between like the yeah. the, the Nepalese um, sort of homegrown? You know, I guess pilot industry because I, I guess you know there'd be a push again to develop that sort of you know in country 
uh, workforce and you know it's obviously a demand for jobs and things like that but is there yeah. is it mainly expats still or is it you know is there a large community um, of, so of local about, pilots to my knowledge there's about five foreign helicopter pilots in the country at the moment that number goes up to about seven or eight in the peak season for us at air dynasty we've got uh, 10 pilots on staff and two of us are foreign so one one's an austrian guy very good pilot and the other one's myself and then uh, within the nepalese guys we've actually got quite a few really experienced pilots as well our chief pilot's got i think over 11,000 hours of mountain rescue time so there's wealth of knowledge there and most of the other guys are over 5,000 hours flying in the mountains here as well. Um, we have two young guys that have been just just been given their captaincy within the last few months. So they're in their early 20s, mid-20s. They went abroad, did their pilot's licences, come back to Nepal, and they've been co-pilots for the past three years, just doing yep, left-seat stuff and the low-attitude kind of operations we do. And then now they're allowed to do local flights within the Kathmandu Valley, after that, they'll be signed off to go to Poker, which is another airport to the west, which is low altitude as well. And over the next kind of 10 years, they'll be gradually brought up through the ranks. So there's a little bit of that going on within the country, but by and large, there's not enough training going on to kind of service the expanding market. So there's a lot, lot, of, lot of growth here, a lot of room for foreign pilots to come over. All right, yeah. You obviously, I think you pre answered this earlier, but, you know, there's that 23,000 limit. So, because one of my questions was going to be, you know, how close have you been to the top of Mount Everest? But uh, you're obviously limited, <laughs> you know, height wise in, in that regard. Yeah. The uh, yeah. difference between. So, I mean, oh, sorry, yeah, go for it. So, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the machine will do it. It'll happily probably go a lot higher in altitude, and, and other people have. You know, they've, they've landed the machine on the summit for a publicity stunt with a Eurocopter. And. There has been rescues carried out at higher altitudes, but I mean, for me, the system we use is we'll fly to the maximum safe altitude we can, drop off some fit, strong Sherpas, and they'll climb up, retrieve the patient, and bring them back down to a safe altitude. And for me, that's more sustainable than um, kind of putting everything on the line just for one rescue. Not forgetting that, I mean, you know, in rescue operations, the most important thing is the safety of the helicopter and the crew. Pushing those limits, you know, one, the legal limit, and then two, the physical limit of what the machine can do is not really, not really something I'm interested in. We'll come back to the number of dead bodies on the on the mounds up there shortly, <laughs> but a difference between yeah. uh, you know the the initial commercial training in New Zealand and here in Australia is I think you guys have you know I think it's like a 150 hour course, but you basically tack on you know mountain flying in that initial CPL uh, training. Yeah, yeah. Did, did you find you, to, you know a little bit of sorry. Yeah, absolutely, because we don't really have mountains here now in Australia. The hills, at, hills at best. Yeah, uh, but did you find graphically a little bit different? Did you find that training there carries over to the work you're doing there in Nepal? Like, is it the same techniques? Yeah, it is. It really is. You know, if you if you fly the machine the way you've been taught, you'll never run into any problems. Well, you, you shouldn't, and hopefully you won't. But Generally, all those you know pass crossing techniques and and uh, and turning techniques and and all that sort of stuff that you learn, that's the stuff you need to apply, and even more so in an environment like this, you know. And that stuff that I was taught in New Zealand, I'd frequently go back to it when I was you know doing my license, thinking back to the stuff they taught me then. And you know, I use that stuff in, in British Columbia and, and Canada and that as well. That really, you know, those, those techniques are the way forward. And I think the main one really makes just speed control. And you know, not not flying the machine at 100 knots everywhere, and just taking things slowly, and taking your time, and thinking about what you're going to do, and have a bit of a plan, and try and stick to it. So, when you're transiting up and down that valley, what sort of airspeed are you you cruising yeah. at? Um, on, on a climb up there, you're sitting about probably 80 knots, 60 to 80 knots, depending on the terrain. You know, just to to try and keep that nice 500 feet. Um, there's lots of rice paddies and stuff like that, but the 500 feet really is the the golden rule in it. In it. Just gives you that much more time to deal with anything that might come along. So yeah, around the 60 to 80 mark. But you know, obviously, before you're landing the aircraft at a, at, at a landing site, that's when you really want to slow the machine down and have it around at 50 knots. And you know, if you're cruising along at 100 knots, you're never going to feel which way the wind direction is coming from. You don't have the luxury of wind socks at a lot of the landing sites, so you really have to do a nice recce and figure out which way the wind's coming from. And slowing the machine down really allows you to to feel which direction the wind's, wind's kind of pushing you from. 
Talking, I guess, you know, again about the rescue side of things. So, you know, one of the things I looked up said mm-hmm. is, you know, there's 200 plus frozen bodies, you know, up there on, on Everest. And there's a one, one guy's called Green yeah. Boots. I think he's been recovered since, but he obviously died in Green Boots and he was a like a, a marker on the track yeah. that people are going to walk past. Now, I think in... Yeah. In all well, last year, I guess it was, you actually had to recover the body of a dead Australian climber. Can you just tell people a little bit about that sort of incident? Yeah, so, so it was quite, yeah, she was quite a strong climber, I think. I mean, I didn't know her personally, but um, unfortunately, she passed away on the mountain. And uh, traditionally, the, the way forward has just been to leave people up there because of the logistics involved in, in kind of getting um, loved ones back off the mountain. So there is a lot of bodies up there, but for her family and her, I guess they decided they wanted to spend a bit of money and try and get her back. We dropped their Sherpa team off at Crampon Point, which was kind of the last, the highest point on the on the Western Combe, on the Kumbu Glacier, where where we can get up to before uh, the lots they face. So more or less the Western Combe Glacier is reasonably flat to just above Camp 2, and then it goes vertically, or almost, you know, 45 degree slope, to the Lotsey face, all the way up to the summit of Lotsey. And Camp 3 is about halfway up there. So I dropped them off at Crampon Point at the base of the Lotsey face, and they went up and brought her down. And then uh, I went up the next day and picked her up. I took her husband to base camp. He was a climber, uh, climbing on Everest as well. Picked her up and brought her back down. So that one, you know, I've done a lot of body recovery on the mountain, but that one probably was quite close to home, you know, because she was from the Antipodes, and uh, just talking to her husband and stuff, yeah, that was a difficult one. But it's a big part of the job, actually, body recovery stuff. We do a lot of it, whether it's climbers or trekkers or locals or whatever. And that's, I think, the, you actually, I think you appear and there's a, a TV series called Everest Rescue, and there's little clips of it again on, on YouTube. Yeah. And obviously, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's cut up in a, in a kind of US. You know the the way editing done is you know the the music and yeah. you know I guess a whole heartbreak oh, yeah. going in that but it actually you know kind of does drive home that like it's pretty extreme stuff up there like you know it's a, a slip or a fall it and, um, and that's that's it yeah it's big boy mountains and it's it's big boy mountains for climbers and it's big boy mountains for pilots you know it's the sort of place that if if you don't have your t's crossed and your eyes dotted. I mean, you make a mistake, you know, there's only sort of one outcome in a lot of the situations and it's not favourable. So really we've got to really be in control of whether you're climbing or or, um, or flying, you really have to be in control of all the details and, and really know know what you're about to do and know the risks involved with it because if you overlook the smallest detail up there, yeah, there's big consequences. All right, I'm going to keep smashing through these questions because I'm conscious of the time. But uh, when those calls come yeah. down and, you know, someone at base camp or up on the mountain and they've got the injury and because uh, you've got, you know, essentially paramedics there with you, do you mm-hmm. – is there some kind of uh, isolation there so that you don't know the condition of the patient so that you can kind of make separate weather decisions? Yeah, so, I mean, Western EMS, that's the system that's kind of used. But, I mean, for me, at this stage of the way we operate, I tend to get told a lot of the information and a lot of it is information that sometimes I need to know. You know, if it's an altitude sickness patient, I'll need to know that because, you know, it's either a time critical or an AMS patient. If they've got AMS, we probably aren't going to go over the high passes. We're probably going to stay low in the valley and and get them to a lower altitude as soon as we can. AMS is? Uh, Acute mountain sickness. Okay. So, um, yeah, so there's kind of three stages of... uh, of altitude sickness, AMS is the first stage, and then from there it's either pulmonary edema, which is a lung problem, when your lungs start to fill with fluid and sputum, and then the cerebral edema is when you're having brain issues with your brain swelling, um, capillary leak inside your brain and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a tough one really, but a lot of the time I am told all the details about everything that's going on, mainly because a lot of the time I'm going to altitude to pick up the patient and I don't have any medical staff with me. So it's me that turns up by myself to pick them up and then fly them back off the hill. So I'll, I'll initially put them on oxygen straight away. Um, generally, if they're an altitude sickness patient, um, the cure for altitude sickness is obviously oxygen and descent. So that's the that's the, the biggest thing we can do for them until we get them to medical personnel. So, so it's a little bit different, I guess, to Western practices with helicopter EMS work. Yeah, and the fact that I, I know everything that's going on with the patient and it's you know it's important to switch that off and focus on flying the machine 
Um, that was one of the reasons why we started introducing medical staff into the operation as well. You know, when I first came here, there, there was no medical staff and it was just me. And I think that that first season I did over 400 rescues by myself with no, no medical staff, but that really drove home the, the, the fact that, you know, we do need medical staff up here other than just the hospital at Lukla. Yeah, earlier this year we we um, started the process of training a flight nurse, uh, advanced paramedic, and we also had a, a wilderness doctor as well based out of Lukla, our own clinic and facility there. So, yeah, it's developing. It's a... You know, aviation is quite young in Nepal, and a lot of those practices that we've put into place in Western countries haven't really started here yet, but it's a slow process, but um, we're slow to get in there. And again, for people listening, like, you know, again, it is a TV series, but but one of the cases they go through, this guy is in, in, in bad shape, like in terms of his alcohol, sorry, not alcohol, he's got uh, altitude sickness and, you know, essentially can't walk or anything. Yeah. But by the time, you know, he lands back at uh, at Lukla, he's, he's lucid, he's walking around and, you know, thanking the, the rescue staff. Yeah. And it's just that, you know, a, a drop in, in 9,000 feet was the difference between mm. this guy yeah. basically being una- unable to walk and, and, and being good to yeah. go. Yeah, so a lot of people don't understand that. And there's there's been people in the past that have accused attitude sickness patients of faking it, you know, because you, you get to the, the site where you're picking them up from and they get carried to the helicopter, put in the back, and they look like they're kind of, you know, really lethargic and unable to, unable to move and struggling to breathe and all the rest of it. And you get them down another 10,000 feet and all of a sudden they're talking. By the time you get them to Kathmandu, they're kind of walking around a little bit. And the damage has already been done but the body starts to kind of start healing and they, they perk up a little bit as well. So if you didn't know a lot about altitude sickness, then you, you would think that they were just faking it to get a free ride down the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you said, you know, it saves like, well, I guess back to Kathmandu, it saves a, you know, a three-week uh, trip possibly. But uh, Yeah, a uh, lot of walking. Cool. I had some questions about um, you know, weight and balance and loading and, and, and DG or, or dangerous goods because – I can only imagine the amount of staff for the different types of things that go in those climbing backpacks would just be, you know, yeah. <laughs> everything between batteries and Some cooking stoves and you name it. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, the, the DG declarations difficult sometimes. A lot of times I'll land to pick people up from a village somewhere and they've got all their packs and uh, I've got to fly them up to another place. And and uh, we do our best, but I'm sure there's a couple of little bits and pieces that get get missed here and there. But I think by and large, we're, we're getting a lot better at it now. And it's just a slowly developing system just to do those DG forms and, and all the rest of it. Do you have any ground staff at those points? Because, again, some of the videos you watch, the, the helicopter comes in, yeah. it, it's running, the people jump on, throw all their packs on, and then the helicopter goes yeah. straight away again. So there's no chance there yeah, to, so- for weighing and, and those sorts of things. No, that's right. Um, and a lot of that's up to the pilot, you know. You've kind of got to look at them and, and do the numbers before you land there, know what the machine, how the machine can perform. And a lot of the time, you know, the, the, the guys are trained, they know what they, what the machine can do and, and what they're allowed to do. They've been told over the phone or the sat phone how many people, but there is sometimes one extra that wants to get a ride as well, doesn't want to wait for the second load or wants to get a free lift and, and, you know, they they do their best to be convincing and to try and get you to take off with them anyway. But, you know, um, really the buck stops with the pilot. And, and that's, that's that point where they're trying to put a lot of pressure on you and you've just got to say, no, nah, I'm sorry, buddy, but you're going to have to walk. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, and again, you know, my limited experience is watching these YouTube videos the last couple of days. But oh, yeah. And, yeah. and you know, I guess I mean, the operations I've done, I've never actually had to jump out or leave an aircraft running to, you know, go f- yeah. check gates or any sort of stuff. I've, I've always been in positions where, uh, you know, we've been multiple crew or we've always shut the aircraft down. So as far as I know, you know, I've never actually yeah. been next to a helicopter running with no one in it. But again, it looks like that's just a requirement yeah. up there because I'm assuming you want to try and minimise shutting is. down. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a risk assessment thing, right? I mean, the same with everything in aviation. There's certain things we need to be very careful of with leaving the machine running. Obviously, it has to be at idle. Frictions have to be on. Um, we need to inspect our collective guard very frequently to make sure that it's not worn out. Otherwise, you know, you're going to have an issue with that, with the collective coming up. And really, you've just got to assess what's going to be more dangerous, untrained people outside the helicopter trying to load themselves or leaving the machine running, you know, for a small amount of time while you kind of control the scene outside the aircraft. 
So it's it's um it's always a, a constant battle. Whenever we can have a crew crewman on board with us, we we try to. And you know part of that is having trained medical staff and all the rest of it. And a lot of the rescues we try and shut down just to slow things down, make it a lot safer. But I mean when it's quite critical, it's yeah, it's a uh, or cr- critical or high altitude, then we tend to leave the machine running. Uh, I mean, you know, a good example is above the Kumbu Icefall in the Western Coombe at Camp 2. There's, I mean, the, there's nothing in the flight manual to say that you can't start the helicopter at that altitude. But no one's ever tried to start a helicopter at that altitude. <laughs> yep. So there's, I mean, I don't know. And if, you know, nothing's going to bring a helicopter back from up there. You know, we can only pick up one or two people maximum um, with all the seats stripped out of the B3. And that attitude, so no one's going to bring that machine back down. It's going to be there forever. Nah, crazy. But uh, no, look at the last couple. Of days, I've had I've had a ball actually looking through photos and videos, and it's uh, you know some of the stuff's out of, out of the world. Like there's certain sections there where if you take away the blue sky, especially up near the the glaciers where it's just rocky and dry, and it, you know you could absolutely be on a on a yeah. different planet. Yeah, that's no, a different environment, right? Look, uh, you know, it could be heaps to go on. I guess, you know, as you said, getting used to country and operating in country and, and going and doing it would take, uh, you know, weeks of, of just soaking up the knowledge of everything that happens up there. But that's been awesome just to get a, a taste of it. So we might uh, yep. wrap it up there. And again, I'll include, you know, heaps of photos and videos in, in the uh, blog post that goes up with this. But where's, uh, Andrew, where's a good spot people can sort of follow you on social media to see some photos? Yeah, so Facebook or Instagram, um, if they want to check out photos. Also, uh, the Air Dynasty Facebook page actually has some quite good videos and stuff on it. We've got some some big film projects coming up this season as well. So, yeah, so there'll be a few things popping up here and there. They can keep an eye out on that. Or uh, if they want some some ice road truckers of the skies, I think the <laughs> Everest Air TV series is on YouTube. Um, and it's, yeah, it's quite over-dramatised. Don't believe everything you see, but... It is a bit of a taste of like of kind of the helicopter industry here and what goes on with the risky stuff. That's awesome. And so yeah, your your uh, Instagram it's uh, Andrew underscore uh, Gutsell. So it's G U T S E L L. If uh, people want to follow Andrew there, <laughs> look. Thank you so much. That's, that's mm-hmm. uh, it's fascinating stuff. And again, you know, looking at the the different airstrips and the operations there, it's. You know, ours, I keep saying it's ours well, but it's just crazy. It's so different to the things I've done. Uh, and that's been awesome just being able to learn yeah. a little bit about it. So thank you so much. Cool. Been a pleasure, Luke. Really here. In May this year, 2017, there was an aircraft crash at Lukla Airfield where the aircraft fell short of the runway and hit the cliff just before the, the threshold. I didn't cover it in the interview as I wanted to sort of focus more on the, you know, generic operations and environment up there in the higher altitudes. However, Andrew and two of the his New Zealand Alpine Rescue Service team members, Andrew Roy, who was a paramedic, and Lisa Lowe, who was a nurse, actually where they're positioned at, you know, it's halfway down the Lucla Strip. So they ran down the end of the strip uh, from their base and helped pull some of the bodies out of the crash. The pilot died on impact. The uh, co-pilot died later that night in the hospital there in the town. And then the, the hostess was flown out to Kathmandu in the morning when the weather uh, lifted and cleared. So for their part, all three of them have been just been awarded the Royal Humane Society of New Zealand Silver Medal for Rescue Services. And the New Zealand Governor-General will present the awards at uh, Cup and House in Wellington sometime in mid-2018. There's actually a video of the plane crashing on YouTube and photos of the cliff that the, the wreckage was hanging off uh, as the people were working to retrieve the survivors. So again, as I opened this interview up, it's it's one of those ones where you know having a look at the videos and the photos of the area they're operating in just adds that extra context uh, to the operations. You sort of realise you know another layer of appreciation for the challenges that they're operating uh, there in that particular spot. Google Earth is amazing as always too. So you can basically pan through the the valley and, and rotate around the glaciers up there, and then use uh, Google Street View to actually walk through the the end of the, the airstrip and see uh, the airstrip there, and walk through the town, and you can actually start walking out through the track uh, that goes up towards uh, base camp. So again, you know, really well worth checking out if you're on the website or if you're online uh, and throwing in Lukla airstrip uh, into a into a, a web search. If you're keen to support the podcast, there's a couple of different ways you can obviously do that. So you might know someone who might find this episode really interesting and get something from it. So please do share it with them or tag someone uh, in the post on social media. You know, it's always really nice to get a review on iTunes to get feedback 
uh, that way and, and sort of get, able to get a message and, and read all those. So that's really, really useful and uh, you know hugely appreciated. So if you're willing to, to do that and leave a review on iTunes, it also helps other people sort of come along and decide if they're going to listen or not. And look, a very special thanks to uh, the Patreon uh, supporters. So Heath, Peter, Tony, Kevin, Jason, Mick, Michael, and Rendell. Uh, look, our financial support just really helps with offsetting some of the, the hosting and the bandwidth uh, sort of fees and costs that go with uh, getting the podcast out to everyone. So again, if you're interested in again, helping out in that way, rotarywingshow.com forward slash support has some details there. And again, that, you know, that's obviously hugely uh, appreciated. The list of top 10 helicopter books for helicopter aircrew is uh, available on the website for download at rotarywingshow.com. And this is probably somewhere where you can get involved if you've been listening for a while and you haven't dropped me a line and to say hello yet. It'd be you know, a really good time, I think, to give the book list a bit of an update seeing it's been out there for a couple of years. So have a think, what would your top 10 helicopter book look? Sorry, let's start again. What would your top 10 helicopter book list look like? Or even your top five? So have a think. Uh, and if you get a chance, drop me an email at feedback at rotarywingshow.com and let me know. You could start looking at updating that list and maybe pushing out a new one fairly soon. Look, I'm also super keen to hear from anyone that's been using Oculus Rift or the HTC Vive uh, virtual reality headsets with helicopter flight sims you know what your impressions are you know what your hardware setup is and what sof- software that you're running some of the stuff i've seen looks you know absolutely amazing I'm, I'm always ready to bite the bullet but the the pc hardware requirements aren't cheap so i'd love to get some feedback from folks with first-hand experience that's all i've got for this episode so thanks for hanging out with me again and hope to catch you very soon in the next episode <laughs>